I'm not sure that I was a believer in manifesting your desires before this episode, but I just might be now. Here's what happened. Over the course of about two or three weeks at the end of last year, several members of the SSR community reached out to me to share about a book by Avi called The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. Some people were asking me if I'd ever read it, some were requesting an episode about it, and some were simply raving about it. While I was a big fan of Avi when I was a kid, this title never hit my radar. But at the end of that two or three week period of Charlotte Doyle chatter I just mentioned, today's guest happened to suggest that we read it for his episode. Friends, you made this happen. Manifesting. The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle was published in 1990 and won a Newbery Honor in 1991. It tells the story of a 13-year-old girl named Charlotte who is traveling from England to America by boat in 1832. Due to a series of unexpected circumstances, she finds herself alone on the journey, with the exception of an all-male crew who has made it very clear that she shouldn't be on the ship, which is called the Seahawk. Charlotte finds comfort with Captain Jaggery, whose fancy manners are familiar to her. When he asks her to be his eyes and ears among the crew, she is more than happy to oblige. But here's the thing. It turns out that Captain Jaggery is a pretty bad guy. The crew has planned a coup to overthrow him, and based on his track record, I don't blame them. Charlotte doesn't quite see the injustices at play right away, but she is forced to address them face-to-face eventually, kicking off a personal growth journey in which her loyalties and sense of right and wrong are constantly tested. Oh, and then she's wrongfully accused of murder, so we have to deal with that. On this episode, my guests and I take a close look at the plot of The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, paying special attention to what it's telling us about race, gender, class, power, and morality. I am so glad you all manifested this episode because I really enjoyed reading and discussing this book. Here to help me wrap up Manuary 2021 is Jordan Moblo of Jordy's Book Club. He shares his reading life and builds a fantastic community of book lovers at Jordy's Book Club on Instagram. Thanks so much to Jordan for joining me for this episode. Thanks so much as well to everyone who is part of my social media community. After this crazy last year, I have a greater appreciation than ever for the power that platforms like Instagram have to connect us and make us feel less alone, even when we're pretty alone IRL. If you aren't part of the SSR social media family yet, come and join us. We are at SSRPod on Instagram and Twitter, and you can find the show on Facebook by searching the SSR podcast or the SSR podcast community. Can't wait to see you there. I would love to take a moment of serious appreciation for everyone who has left a five-star rating or review for the show on Apple Podcasts. I read every single one and love hearing about what you enjoy about the show, as well as what you want more of. As of this recording, SSR has 280 ratings on Apple Podcasts. Do you think we can creep closer to 300? I think we can. If you have a moment and you like what you're hearing, please take the time to leave a rating and or review. It doesn't take long, and it means so much to me on a personal level. Plus, it helps the podcast find more listeners who share our fascination with literary throwbacks. If you're feeling inspired to help the podcast in other ways, you can share this episode to your Instagram story. Don't forget to tag SSRPod so I can see and give you a shout out. You can also share your support for the show by becoming a Patreon sponsor. For just a few dollars every month, you can take pride in knowing that you're keeping this little independent podcast going strong. Come on board for as little as a dollar per month and explore lots of awesome perks, including Patreon parties, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, SSR merch, and more. Starting this month, I'll also be recording video recaps of my monthly reading to share with Patreon sponsors. There are a lot of fun things happening in the Patreon community in 2021. Want to learn more? Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for the details. Thank you to all of the Patreon patrons tuning into this episode. I feel so grateful to be partnered with Libro FM in their ongoing mission to support independent bookstores. 
My friends at Libro FM have made it possible for you to support indie bookstores instead of giant corporations when you shop for audiobooks. The audiobooks you can get from Libro FM are exactly the same as the ones you would buy from the big guys, and they're the same price too. There's really no downside. In fact, there's an extra upside. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. I can't wait to hear about the audiobooks you're listening to and loving. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited about this episode because I have been hearing about this book primarily from the SSR community for a really long time. I don't know how it was not on my radar when I was a book obsessed (laughs) kid. I feel sort of sad for myself as a child because I had never even heard of this book, The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle, and I have finally experienced it, and you and I are going to talk about it on this episode. I love it. We, we indoctrinated you into the Charlotte Doyle community, finally. Finally. I feel, like, I feel like the SSR community actually kind of manifested it a little bit because I had gotten over the course of a single week a bunch of messages about this book, and it was that week that you and I started talking and wow. you suggested this book. So listeners, like this is this is the power of meant to be. thoughts. Yeah. I mean, keep telling me your favorite books and we will do them. <laughs> so tell me about your history with this book, Jordan. Tell me if you read this book when you were a kid, what are your memories of it? So I did read this as a kid. Um, it's funny when we were talking about which books to pick, I, I'm such a I'm such a well-read person or I like to consider myself that, but I really don't remember a lot of books I read as a kid. But this is one that really did stand out to me. I read it. I remember in sixth grade, this book, funny enough, like sixth grade books seem to be the ones that stand out because it was this book and The Westing Game, which I think was another one that that we had mentioned, um, were like two of my favorites as a kid. And they just still stand out to me to this day. And I, even before reading it again, I could still remember like what it was about and the characters and where it took place. And, And so it's just kind of been indelible in my memory. It's just one of those books, funny enough. That is funny. Yeah, The Westing Game is another great one. We covered that one on the podcast. And I think that's how I feel about The Westing Game. Like, I, I don't know that I yeah. necessarily remember all the characters and all the details when we talked about it on the podcast, but it somehow was just like in my DNA somehow because I loved it so much when I was a kid. But it's weird to me that I didn't know about the true confessions of Charlotte Doyle because I was a big Avi fan, Avi being the oh. author of this book. Um, and for some reason, like, I don't know if it wasn't carried in my school library or if maybe just nobody ever handed it to me it seems like the kind of book that is and should be read in schools because there's so much good discussion in it I was obsessed with this book by Avi and I wonder if you read it but I've been wanting to do it on the podcast forever actually now more than ever it's called nothing but the truth do you remember that one I don't know if I do it's about this kid who doesn't want to say the pledge of allegiance 
and about this whole battle that he wages with the school and his school district to be allowed to not say the Pledge of Allegiance. And I read it when I was probably in fifth or sixth grade. So around the same time that you're talking about having these very vivid memories. And I wrote, I I have, again, clear memories. I wrote this very intense book report about Mm -hmm. it. Like I just attached myself to this book and I read pretty much all of his other stories. So I don't know why the true confessions of Charlotte Doyle never came across my little elementary school desk. It's interesting. And going to the book that you're speaking about also, it's it's interesting because both of these books feel like they're, they're kind of in that category of timeless where they're still kind of relevant today and, and still potential to make a cultural impact on kids if they are still teaching them in schools these days. Yeah, I, I felt the same way about this book. And listeners, for context, Jordan and I are talking just a few days after the domestic terrorism at the Capitol. Um, and so this book has a lot of themes of race and class and loyalty and power and how you align yourself. And so I don't know about you, but as I was reading, I was having all of these little like mental bursts going yeah. off. I'm like, oh, this feels so timely. This feels so timely. So yeah, if you haven't read this, listeners, I'm going to let you know up front. I highly recommend that you pick it up. If you are new to it like I am, if you loved it as a kid, I'm telling you, if you come back to it now, you're going to find something new. And like I said, very timely in Charlotte Doyle's story. Yeah. And I mean, on top of the fact that it covers really topical issues, it's still wildly entertaining as well. I it's it still even as an adult was a really enjoyable read for me to look to go over again. I, I, I was still captivated by the mystery, like the character journeys. It's timeless. Yeah, for a little context about the inspiration for the book, and I don't know if we're reading the same edition and if you had the same author preface that I do, but I did think this was interesting where Avi talked about the idea for the book and how the whole thing came to be. So he was writing a book about Edgar Allan Poe And one of the things that he discovered was this idea of like a locked room mystery, where the idea there is that like, if a mystery or a murder takes place in a locked room or a locked home or a locked building of any sort, somebody who was in the room or the building or the house has to have been responsible for the mystery or the murder or the crime. And so he realized that like the ultimate locked room mystery would have to take place on a ship. And apparently as he was writing, he thought that the whole thing was going to be more of like a sort of like a bigger scale mystery. Like he wasn't as keyed into Charlotte Doyle as the focus at first. And then he realized that he was really into Charlotte Doyle as a character. And so then he sort of changed um, his approach to the story and it became hers. Wow. And it's funny because I think like um, this book and the Westing game are like two of those books that almost were like gateway drugs into us as readers these days that now like clamor for those Agatha Christie mysteries. It feels like that was like YA Agatha Christie especially here where it's like it all takes place on one location, multiple suspects and a murder weapon. I just, I, I was definitely getting Agatha Christie vibes here. Totally. I always say Westing Game was my gateway drug to books with as many characters as possible. Yeah. As <laughs> as possible. Because I love a book with like rotating perspectives. Yeah. And just want as many people and characters in a book as possible. And I think the Westing Game maybe is the thing that got me into that. So uh, yeah. yeah, I love that idea, gateway drug. <laughs> Exactly. So I think that this book has such a strong opening. So I wanted to share that for our listeners. The book starts this way. Not every 13-year-old girl is accused of murder, brought to trial and found guilty. But I was just such a girl and my story is worth relating even if it did happen years ago. Be warned, however, that this is no story of a bad boy. Know what Katie did. If strong ideas and action offend you, read no more. Find another companion to share your idle hours. For my part, I intend to tell you the truth as I lived it. 
Oh, it's so good. Mm -hmm. I want to read more. I know I'm in, I'm ready to read it again, even though I just finished reading it yesterday. So what were your first impressions of Charlotte getting to know her again as an adult? I liked it because, well, look, getting to know her first, she's kind of like, she kind of reminded me of like, it sounds dumb, but like Rose from Titanic, you know, kind of highfalutin, a high society girl who has only been raised to know one way of life. And, and she definitely, look, I've read the book before, so I kind of know the journey she's going to go on, but it is nice to see the beginnings of it her beliefs and, and who she thinks she is and knowing that those are going to be flipped on their head very quickly once she gets on the ship. Yeah. So it's 1832. As you mentioned, I think Rose from Titanic is a really good comp for her. Um, <laughs> she's getting on the ship. And I love the idea that she thinks she's going to have this like grand journey, which is such right. like a 13 year old thing. And it's like, <laughs> year-old thing like I'm getting on a ship and it's going to be fabulous mm -hmm. her parents have sort of like set all of these things in place thinking that it's going to be totally safe for her to go right um, <laughs> in hindsight we're both not this is ridiculous because you guys thought it was going right. to be so fine for her to go and do this by herself <laughs> I know you like look at it you're like who what parent is letting their kid go on a two-month journey across the sea with two random families they've like potentially never met before I think like it's like they don't even know who they are but they have money so it's fine like they're society so it's cool they'll make sure she gets to the other end um and i kept thinking throughout this book i think i jotted it down in the margins like no less than 10 times i just i kept having to remind myself like her parents don't know anything that's going on right and, and it's, it's again this is 1832 and listeners know that i bring this up a lot when we talk about historical fiction and it sounds so dumb because of course 1832 they didn't have great communication technology. They didn't really have any communication technology, not to mention the fact that she's on a ship. So she can't even send letters, which would have been her only option. But I'm like, as the events of this book unfold, and it gets crazier, the fact that her parents think that she's just like, again, sort of bopping along on the ocean, making her way with these other families to the US, it's, <laughs> it's laughable. It's like one of those plot points that like, you're like, well, I'm just going to put it to the side and not think about that and just enjoy the story for what it is, which is like a, a character journey with some really interesting themes and lessons to learn. Yeah, I, it was hard for me to let it go. I was like, if only her parents knew. <laughs> if only her parents knew. So yeah, she's traveling from England to the US. Her, her family lives in Rhode Island um, and her family wanted her to finish out the school year. So again, they've set these things in place theoretically to keep her safe so that she can get to Rhode Island safely and comfortably. She thinks she's going to have this grand adventure and she gets there and like really everything and everyone is telling her that she shouldn't go. There are these logistical issues when the boat was supposed to leave. Literally people are telling her like, no, you don't want to go on this boat. You just don't go. These other families don't show up. It's like one of those things where if you're a superstitious person and, and you're into following signs of any sort, like don't get on the boat. This is not looking good. Right. And if I'm a 13 year old and a bunch of like scary men are running up to me and saying, get off the boat, like, <laughs> chances are I'm not. And if I go to my cabin and my cabin is six feet by four feet by four feet tall and barely has a recognizable bed, I think that I would question my decision as well. Yeah, she can't even stand up. And again, she thinks she's going to have this like fabulous time, but her trunk doesn't even fit. They have to put her trunk somewhere else. So she like doesn't even know where her belongings are. I actually was surprised that the trunk even made it on the boat. Like that, my number one concern was like her stuff's not even going to make it. <laughs> so she was lucky that her things went with her. Um, but something that I flagged was that like, as all of these people are giving her warnings, there was one guy who isn't giving her warning. And that's this Mr. Grummage character who was like, 
tasked with escorting her from school to the dock. And that was literally all he was supposed to do. Somebody paid him to escort her. And like his thing was, I don't really care what other people say. Your father gave me specific instructions to drop you off. And that's what I'm going to do. Bye. And the quote that I pulled out was, what could I do? All my life, I had been trained to obey, educated to accept. Mm -hmm. Which I thought was really telling and sets up a lot of what we see in this book, which for me, one of the prevailing themes is this idea of like, when you're growing up, I think especially in this time and especially as a young woman, it's like people tell you who to be loyal to. People tell you where you belong, who to trust. And I think Charlotte's journey through this story, one of the big things she learns is that she has the ability, she can gain the agency to make some of those decisions for herself. But at the beginning of this story, she doesn't know that she can do that. Right. And I think that there's also... um she definitely leans into the the social hierarchy as well of where she thinks she fits on the ship as a woman of a, of an upper class family and who she reports to and who she listens to and so she's definitely taking direction based on that as well yeah she assumes that she's going to fit into the same kind of society on this ship as she would on land which is with people who have money who look like her who are white And uh, it's a lot more complicated than that, as we're about to find out. Uh, There's a lot of ups and downs. I will say I I was like a little bit emotionally, and I don't know if this is a phrase, I was like morally exhausted from this book, Um, (laughs) trying to keep up with the shifting loyalties, like trying to figure out as she journeyed across the ocean, who like who, where she was aligning herself at any given time, what her other options were, the various moral quandaries she was put in. This is what ha- it's like every 20, 30 pages, I felt like she was put in a different situation to pick a side. So I'll preface this next part of the conversation with that listeners, because it was a little hard to keep track of. And I can only imagine being a character like Charlotte Doyle and actually having to keep track of that. It's exhausting. <laughs> For sure. And like you said, it's one of those books where there's multiple, multiple characters and you're trying to keep track of all of them because they all seem to have ulterior motives and they're all kind of giving away pieces to whatever this puzzle or mystery is as to why they're telling her to get off the boat or why they are not giving her all the information as to what is actually happening with these relationships on the boat and between the crew and the captain. Yeah, it was also kind of hard to keep track of the crew because there were there were just so many of them and their names yeah. for me at least kind of all blended together. There were only a few that I kept remembering. Of course, there's the captain, Captain Jaggery, um, and then Zachariah, who is just like a fantastic character and stands apart from the crew in so many ways as the only black man on the ship, um, also as like the wisest figure on the ship. And he's the chef and the surgeon, and he just sort of like does everything that anybody needs him to. And then Mr. Hollingbrass, I believe is his name, the first mate. So there's there's many others that sort of prop up throughout the book, but it was it was challenging at first because it was like Charlotte smacked into the middle of the ship with all these dudes whose names I can't keep track of. <laughs> right. Same. I will say this is a digression, but I did find it interesting because when I was researching for our conversation today, I, I found that there was an IMDB page for The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle. And I don't know if you were aware of this because I know that you work in the entertainment world, but there was like many, there was a movie in in development for many, many years Mm -hmm. that never came to be, but Danny DeVito was was going to direct and produce it. And Morgan Freeman was going to star as Zachariah and Pierce Brosnan as Captain Jaggery, which Pierce Brosnan as Captain Jaggery 
great casting. And then originally Dakota Fanning was supposed to be Charlotte Doyle, but this whole thing was taking so long wow. that she was too old. And so I'm going to pronounce her name wrong, but then Sarsha Ronan yep. was put in for Charlotte Doyle. But things kept happening. Like Morgan Freeman was in a terrible car accident. And then I think there might've been some weird financial stuff that happened, but yet it's still just kind of like paused. Mm-hmm. And I wish I'd known that information before I read the book because I was, I was like, oh, this needs to be a movie. Like, why hasn't this been a movie yet? And I wish I'd read the book thinking about those like casting decisions as I went. Yeah, I um, it does have a history. I have heard rumblings that they are in the process of making it a finally. Who that cast will be, probably not Saoirse Ronan since <laughs> she's probably eight out of the park. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's, it's the characters are very, they're very well described and they definitely come to life on the pages of the book and it's very cinematic. So I think it's kind of fun to, to try and envision who you see in those roles and, and definitely the journeys that they have. And, and I definitely see this being, you know, something that should come to life on screen. And I think that the book itself is worth reading, but I think that a movie is great for family audiences as well, even though it does explore some really dark territory that was a lot darker reading it again than it was when I first read it or that I remember when I first read it. Well, and to your point earlier about it being such a timeless story, yeah, I wish that it had come out earlier because I wish I'd gotten a chance to see it when I was younger, but maybe it's better that it's being made now with like these additional years of yeah. current events and life to inform it because I do think that there's a whole new lens that contemporary audiences can absorb this story through. I certainly absorbed it differently now in 2021 than I would have earlier. Oh, for sure. And I think the author look, he doesn't hammer the the readers over the head with any specific theme, but I think he is very nuanced in some of the things he says. When they talk about Zachariah reporting the captain when he gets to land, and there's kind of a couple sentences where like, who's going to believe you as a black man in 1832 versus a white captain, you know, of a higher upper class. And, and some of those sentences, I look, I don't think I appreciated them probably as a kid. And I don't know if my teachers at the time really hammered that kind of point home, but it definitely stood out today when reading it. Yeah, that's true. Because I was thinking again, like I think, I hope that kids read this book in schools, but I thinking about my own elementary school experience or even middle school experience, I don't know that my teachers in the 90s would have been prepared to, like you said, hammer home that kind of a sentence and explain like what it means to illuminate the differences in credibility in this time period between a black man like Zachariah and a white man like Captain Jaggery, even though, this captain has a terrible record. Like the entire crew petitioned the admiralty courts, whatever that is in sea world. They all petitioned these courts to not allow Captain Jaggery to be in charge of this ship because he has a record of being abusive to his crews. They actually, they share with Charlotte that he cut off a man's hand, Mr. Cranick, who does end up coming back um, and sort of leading he, he leads this coup. But yeah, even even though all of those things have happened, Zachariah still has less credibility than Captain Jaggery because it's 1832 and there's this racial divide. And quite frankly, even in 2021, those yeah. credibility divides still exist. So as much yeah. as we can read a book like this and be like, wow, this is so crazy, it's really not. No, and it's interesting because I've um, I've talked before on my account about YA really being at the forefront of, t- of tackling difficult subject matter and things that are culturally relevant to us. And it's interesting to see that a book that came out 20, 30 years ago was also at the forefront of really tackling difficult subject matter and, and things that maybe teachers weren't discussing with students at the time, especially 
me, I read it, I think when I was 11, like, and I just remember it as being like a swashbuckling adventure story and not really, you know, an exploration of race and gender and class, which it definitely is. Yeah. Well, and circling back to my little comment about my obsession with that other book, Nothing But the Truth, this seems to be an author who is exploring issues even in the 80s and 90s that probably not being broached by other kids authors and even adult authors at that time. Like I remember feeling like I I was very badass for reading that book, Nothing But the Truth. (laughs) And I remember sharing it with my parents because I was so into it. Like I had never heard anything like this. And my parents even being very open-minded in 1998, 1999, the idea of not saying the Pledge of Allegiance in a public school, it's like, right. why, Allie, why is that cool? Like, why are you so into this book? So I am interested in Avi and I would like to do more research about him because it seems like in some ways explicitly and in some ways implicitly or more subtly, at least he was exploring some really heavy and important yeah. stuff when others weren't. Because I agree with you now in in 2021, there are YA authors who are at the forefront of a lot of these conversations, but it was less of a, I don't want to use the word trend, but it was less of, I think it was, it was not as much of a part of the industry at that time. No, I agree. So Charlotte is on the boat. She's in this very small little room. As we said, it's like four by six. She can't even stand up. It's dark. She doesn't know where her stuff is. This is not the Titanic of Rose's dreams that we're dealing with at all. She meets Zachariah and he um, wants to befriend her. He says to you, and you, the soul girl, and I, the one black, are special on this ship. In short, we begin with two things in common, enough to begin a friendship. And she, I assume, has probably never met a black person before, or if she has, not in the context of just like speaking to them in this casual way. So she's uncomfortable. And she just wants to meet the captain. Like, that's really all that she wants to do. She's like, where is my society? Where are my people? She's identified the captain as the person on the ship who is most similar to her and to her father. That comes up again and again. She says a couple of times, like, he reminds me of my dad. He reminds me of my dad. Which, again, I think goes back to this idea of the way that young girls were conditioned in this time period. And, again, still today to, like, trust your dad or trust people who look like your dad because they they'll take care of you it's this very Mm -hmm. heteronormative patriarchal idea that underpins all of charlotte doyle's conceptions of the world yeah and i think she's used to seeing people like zachariah black people who especially i think they even mentioned at the end of the book when there's a lot when she's trying to talk to her own help at her house when she gets when she gets home and no one will look her in the eye and no one will call her by her first name and they're very subservient. And so I think she's, she's been programmed to believe that this hierarchy exists in this specific way. And so when Zachariah reaches out to, to her as an equal, as two people from marginalized communities, her being a young girl and him being black, she doesn't really understand that, that, that they are on this level together and she only sees herself as above him. And so it's interesting to kind of see how he presents it and how she perceives it. And having never read this book before, I will say that my my feeling from the minute that she got on the ship was like everybody was being predatory to her. Yeah. Like the whole vibe of her experience right off the bat was it was predatorial. And so as much as I wanted to trust Zachariah as a reader, I like wasn't sure if I could. And then I was, of course, having all of this judgment against myself because I was like, is this only because I am sort of 
living this through Charlotte's experience and she's never met a black person before? Or is it because I, as a woman, have my like feelers out for any sense of danger or these people who are being predatorial toward her? So I really feel like because I had never read the book before, I was like experiencing that and kind of filtering all of these people through those different filters. I don't know if that yeah. makes any sense. I wanted to trust him though, right off the bat. Yeah. I mean, look, it's hard not to to look at the position Charlotte's in, which is she's a 13-year-old girl who's on a boat with all these strange men. Like that in and of itself is a, is a dangerous situation or or something that, that raises a lot of red flags, regardless of you know who she is or who they are. That is just an interesting situation to find yourself in. So of course, you're on your toes with regards to what are everyone's intentions and who are all these people and especially when she's getting so many threats and warnings to get off the boat. You, you know, who can you trust on this ship? Yeah. Cause I was like, why don't you guys want her on the boat? Like right. did, what I, it felt very eerie. It had this like pirates of the Caribbean vibe for me at first. Like all of these men are like conspiring to keep her off the ship. What that, what's that about? And mm-hmm. in the end, we find out that they're actually trying to protect her because they know that this guy, Captain Jaggery has this terrible record and and they want to rebel against him. So to have her there is only going to slow down their efforts and also put her in danger. So they all really like had her best interests at heart, but we don't know that. And she's a 13 year old girl. She's never been on this kind of a trip before. And I'll say it again. I know it sounds so dumb. She can't just like text her parents and be like, shit's getting crazy on this boat. It's just (laughs) bad all around. Um, So yeah, I was, I was sort of like reserving judgment about what was happening with Zachariah. He gives her a knife, which also made me feel nervous because I knew a from the the first few pages of the book where she talks about how she was charged with murder, and then from the things that I've heard from other people about what ultimately happens. So I was trying to look out for how this whole thing would go down. And so when he hands her the knife, I was like, "Hmm, this seems like this could be the thing that kicks off." her ultimate like struggle as a girl charged with murder on this boat. And so that made me a little bit um, distrustful of Zachariah, but of course, you know, he turns out to be a great guy. Well, it's by handing her a knife on a boat where she expects she's going to have a peaceful passage across the sea. You're automatically intoning that there's violence expected and he knows that there's violence to come. And so how, how are you supposed to immediately trust the man that, that expects there to be some type of violence that will instigate her to need a knife in the situation. Right. Well, and it's also this conditioning, I think, where like, if you can look at it from the other side, it's like she's, this is putting her in a position of power. And that's a good thing. And we should have the ability to protect ourselves. But that's not what we think about when we see that somebody's been given a weapon. We think about it as, I think, in some ways, like maybe taking power of power away, because it means that you are in a position where you will need more power when in fact what's happening is that you should be feeling better and stronger. So I think it's also all of these things to me felt like these moments for me to consider some of my own conditioning and some of my own, the filters that I see things through. To me, it felt it felt dangerous that she had the knife, but also some might say it felt like powerful that she was going to be prepared to defend herself should something happen. Yeah. I mean, I guess it's the first kind of sign that she's she's got the opportunity to take agency over the decisions she makes and where she's not going to be listening to those around her she's traditionally listened to, but she'll be able to make decisions for herself in a way that protects her and allows her to defend herself. Yeah. 
I think that's very well said. So she has this knife. She's not into it. She wants to hide it. She actually, she tries to return it many times throughout the book. She tries to give it to the captain. She tries to give it back to Zachariah. She's like, please take this off my hands. And that becomes extra important at the end or as near the end. But she finally gets her audience with the captain. She is invited to tea. She says, the captain's behavior at tea was proof enough for me of his true goodness. Um, which I think captures her sort of like naive attitude about the world and about people so perfectly because just like seeing the way he eats a tea sandwich, that that's all she needs to know to know you're a good guy. Right. And it's like, she's assuming that people in power equal good and, mm. and people below her equal bad. And just because he's the captain, he's automatically assumed to be a good guy here and someone that she can relate to and and someone that she can trust on the ship. And you find out later on that she was kind of blinded by the power and what she perceived him to be. And when she actually kind of takes these rose colored glasses off and sees the captain for, for who he is and this room that he's sitting in for what it actually is and, and what it's become, it's really interesting to see his transformation and her ability to actually see people for who they truly are and not what they are. Yeah. And I think that this is actually something important that I left out is that the captain sort of works for her dad or this ship yeah. is like under the ownership of, of her dad's company. There's some connection between the Seahawk, which is the name of the ship and her dad's business. And so again, she just sort of naively believes that anybody who works for her dad or anything that's associated with her dad's company and sort of her means of being rich has to be good. Power mm -hmm. equals good. Money equals good. Being connected to my dad always equals good, no matter what. So she doesn't even think to ask any questions. And she starts having tea with the captain every day. And he sort of asks her to be his mole. She is shown this symbol that's called a round robin, which is like a round drawing with a bunch of names written in a circular way so that no single name is above any of the others. And the captain explains to her that it's often a symbol of a rebellion. So he's like, if you see one of these, let me know. So he's just manipulating her directly into his hands. And um, she really takes that seriously. And I can relate to that because growing up, I was a huge stickler for rules. I always wanted to be the best at everything. I really wanted adults to trust me. And so I was probably vulnerable in a similar way to Charlotte of, if you as an adult tell me to try to get somebody else in trouble, I will, I will be on the lookout for those people to be doing bad things. Yeah. I mean, she, she's very easily manipulated because she's been raised a very specific way. And the captain obviously has ulterior motives with her being on the boat because he knows that the crew is mutinous to begin with based on past experiences. And by, by having Charlotte in the midst of them, his goal is to, to kind of soften their edges and kind of keep them in line because the expectation is because there is a woman on board, they will behave and they will be good and they won't cause trouble. And so he's kind of using her almost as a shield to protect himself in this, in this situation. Yeah. And they all are sort of just using her in different ways. He's using her to protect himself. The crew ends up using her in other ways. And it's, it, it, I sort, it was funny because I, I read through it over the last few days. And this morning, I was just kind of going through my notes and pulling out things that I wanted to make sure I remembered. And it's like, you can track it exactly. Like, this is when the crew wants her. This is when the captain wants her. This is when the crew wants her. This is when the captain wants her. She's just kind of passed back and forth between all of these dudes on the ship for the vast majority of the book until the end when she finally is able to like stand in her own power and make her own decisions about who she wants to be associated with. But it's sort of exhausting when, when I, I was like, I could make a graph of this. Yeah. I mean, and the author references chess a couple times in the book and, and it's, 
an interesting connection because she's essentially a pawn for most of the book and being used by these power players until the end when when in the final scene with the captain the, the chessboard has been wiped clean and she's kind of the last piece standing there which is when like you said she kind of comes into her own power and, and takes control of her situation you know that i don't play chess because i sort of missed all of the chess references <laughs> nor have i watched the queen's gambit <laughs> well i did watch the queen's gambit so the chess references are at the top of my head right now yeah, I'm like the only one left who's uh, in the pandemic and has yet to watch The Queen's Gambit. So I missed that one right over my head. So thank you for pointing that out. That's very true and very helpful. So ultimately, Charlotte does turn the crew in. She sees around Robin. She says, you will understand that there was no doubt in my mind regarding what I had seen. There had been a pistol. There had been a round robin. With the warnings given to me by Captain Jaggery and ever mindful of the possibilities revealed to me by Zachariah, I had little doubt about the meaning of my discoveries. The crew was preparing a rebellion. So yeah, she's like, okay, great. I found them. I'm going to let them know. And look at me. I'm I'm so great. I'm so well-behaved. I'm a great lady. And so she tells him. And things sort of spiral out of control from there, I would say. The... Captain discovers that Mr. Cranick, again, we mentioned him earlier as the previous crew member who had his hand taken off as a punishment for bad behavior or perceived bad behavior on another ship that he was on. He was hiding and Charlotte had actually seen him. Um, and I wanted to point out this moment too, because she saw him when she was like looking for his trunk or for her trunk. And she was like, I know there was a guy there. Like there's definitely a guy there. And she has no idea who it could be because they're on a boat. Like, of course, she's seen everybody who's there. And I pulled out this one quote. She says, this then was my conclusion. It was I who had not seen properly, which I think is really timely and something that women especially can relate to, um, at least in my experience. And I can only speak to my experience, but I think that I tend to always be like, oh, I probably misunderstood that or I, I didn't see that correctly or I need to apologize for the fact that I didn't perceive this the way that it actually happened. So I thought that was really interesting and a really smart, small detail on Avi's part that comes back because Charlotte was right. There was a man hiding on the ship the whole time and it was Mr. Cranick who's ultimately going to lead this rebellion against the captain. Yeah, I mean, look, Charlotte's seeing her world through two lenses. She's seeing her world through the lens of men and how they perceive situations, whether it's the captain or Zechariah or her father who is telling her this is what's happening and you should trust my vision of it. And then she's also perceiving the world through what she's been taught and learned. And she's really judging people based on appearances rather than who they actually are. She's, she's judging Zechariah for being a black man and essentially being the cook and below her. She's judging the crew for being disheveled and in these uniforms they spend all day in. And then she's judging the captain for his position of power and being of the same upper class position that she is. And because of that, she's making a lot of misjudgments because she's not actually perceiving these people in her own way. Well, she has no like objective sense of right and wrong, I don't think, at the beginning of the book, right? Because like you said, she's seeing all of these people through lenses of different kinds of markers of class, mm -hmm. of race of power manners like she she doesn't necessarily know how to make decisions or judgments about people based on how they behave because i don't know that she's ever been given the latitude to figure out her own sense of morality because everything that she knows is just based on what other people tell her is good or bad and so she doesn't really know how to make those choices those calls independent of her parents especially her father yeah, and there's a big, there's a lot of discussion in the book about what is natural and what is unnatural 
for women in society and and natural is she should be in her dress and she should be polite and she should be you know reading her bible and her books and having tea with the captain and unnatural is she should not be with the crew she should not be working she should not be in pants so it's really interesting that they they use those specific words unnatural to describe the situation she puts herself in yeah it's a lot of binaries right it's like this mm-hmm. is is what a woman or a girl does. This is what a man or a boy does. This is what a white person does. This is what a black person does. This is what something like the captain does. This is what the crew does. It's all very clearly defined, but nobody really talks about why those things are the way they are, which again, while I think that a lot of these binaries unfortunately persist in 2021, I do think that at least there's more discussion about why we have sorted those binaries the way that we have traditionally. And I think those conversations are continuing and maybe becoming a little bit um, more accessible for people in places where they once were not, which I think is the progress that I might celebrate. Although I think we are unfortunately still rooted in a lot of these very heteronormative ideas that we see in this book. But yeah, it's it's all based in binaries. And this idea of Charlotte being, an, as you mentioned, this quote, unnatural woman, which is a word that comes up later in the book in the trial especially jaggery just like is pissed off because in her unnatural behavior she's throwing off what he sees as the natural order of his ship and of him being in charge this is so clearly a guy who became the captain of a ship because he likes power like he wants a job where he is so in charge zachariah talks early in the book about how the captain of a ship is not just the captain he's also like the judge the jury the executioner like he just thrives on this power and he does not like to see that this little girl as he perceives her is coming onto his ship and throwing everything upside down yeah and i think when you when you use the words natural and unnatural versus right or wrong you're not this isn't like decision making this is a this is almost biological that you were born into these positions or that you were born to be a certain way rather than you got to make that decision and as a person you were presented choices This is something that you were almost born into, it feels like. Yes. And then also, right, being born into, in Charlotte's case, being a, at least assigned at birth, being a girl and being rich. And so she can't, as far as she knows, she can't get out of that until she's on the ship and she's forced to have to be a little bit more flexible in the way she does things, in the way she perceives her identity. And she realizes that things are not so binary. Like she can be a girl who wears pants because she has to do things on the ship and she can be a wealthy girl, or at least a girl who was born into wealth, who associates with black men and men that don't have a lot of money and men who work with their hands. I will say I was actually reflecting after I read the book on these crew members, because at first I was like, oh, these are these men are so much older than her. But some of them were probably like 16, 17, 18 years old. And they seemed so much older as I was reading the book. But something that I thought was kind of off-putting I mean, it was off-putting, but the captain instructs her to read her Bible to the crew as like an act of service to them. He basically was like, the only time I want you interacting with these men is when you can teach them morality by reading them the Bible. And my first reaction was like, these are adult men. Like this is inappropriate on so many levels and also very patronizing to them. The fact that like you think that the only way they can learn how to be good people is from the Bible, A, and from a 13-year-old child. I was like, these men are actually probably boys. They're probably 16, 17, 18, with the exception of maybe the first and second mates and Zachariah. Like, these are probably like teenage boys who left home and are trying to like make a life for themselves. And Charlotte's just trying to find her place among them. 
Exactly. I think that's a, a really good point. Yeah. So she really has to find her place among them because after she discovers the rebellion and she turns them in, Jagri kills Mr. Cranick and forces them to just throw his body off the ship. Charlotte thinks that he has also killed Zachariah. Spoiler alert. They haven't. Zachariah is going to come back. Thank goodness. Um, but she feels so guilty about what she's caused that she decides that she's going to try to replace Zachariah and Cranick on the ship or on the crew by forcing her way into the crew, by kind of like making them trust her. And none of them want to accept her into the crew, but they're like, okay, if you can climb to the highest mast on this whole ship, it's fine. You you can join. And she proves that she can do it, which I thought was really impressive. Um, I don't always love scenes that are, I don't always love like a scene that's like five, six, seven pages of action like that. I can get very yeah. bored. But I thought that that was actually genuinely engaging from start to finish. Like I really was invested in whether or not she would make it all the way to the top and all the way to the bottom because they clearly didn't think that she could do it. Yeah, I think, look, and I'm. it's one of the scenes that stands out from when I read it as a kid as being like a really fun, like cheerful, like a cheering moment. You really cheer for Charlotte there because because at that point she has she has uncovered a coup and lost the trust of the crew. And then she essentially is responsible for Zachariah's death because she won't call out another crew member to take his punishment. And so the captain pulls him. And then she also accidentally whips the captain with the whip, which forces her to lose his trust as well. Though ultimately I think he sees her as a pawn that he's just using. So it's, it's part of his, his game with her, but it's nice to see her go from this underdog on the ship to actually starting to take the power back herself. And even though it's kind of this ridiculous scene of like this 13 year old having to like dangerously climb to the top mass of the ship, it's still, you know, inspiring and fun and action packed. And my, even today reading it, my hands were sweating a little bit. So it's like, it's really a fun moment in that book. And like you said, with regards to like a movie, it's very cinematic thinking about it. Yeah, it's a 200 foot climb. And and the author describes like they, they said, don't look down. But of course, she looks down because why wouldn't you? And just the way that Avi describes like the ship getting so small, the ocean looking so big. Yeah. I thought it definitely like kept me engaged. And I think as a kid, I would have probably like enjoyed those parts way more than I maybe would have been able to really enjoy and like understand sort of the like the critical parts of the book, the parts of the book that are trying to be more critical of our society and of the way that we tend to relate to each other. Um, so yeah, she proves herself. She did it. She gets all the way up to the top and then all the way down to the bottom. And she's now part of the crew. And she's like, she and the captain are done. So it's over. She says to him, I'm no longer a passenger. I'm with them. So she's, she's proven that like her morality is more important than her class, at least to the crew. And I think that was what she wanted to prove. She wants to prove to them that like she's willing to kind of get rough and get dirty if it means that she can show that she's sorry for what happened with the two men that they lost because she reported the coup to the captain. So she's on the crew for a while and then there's a hurricane and things again go a little wild. She sees Zachariah again thinking that he had died and so she's not trusting herself again. She hasn't been conditioned to trust her own ability to see and understand things. And then they find Mr. Hollybrass, who was the first mate, dead once they survive the hurricane. And he has Charlotte's knife in his back. And of course, we're experiencing this whole story through Charlotte's eyes. So we know that she didn't kill him. But it is also convenient that 
her knife is the one that's in his back and she is charged for his murder. And it was interesting because I was thinking based on what I knew about the book that it was going to be like the whole second half was going to be this this trial. But this is really only the last like 40 or 50 pages of the book that we get into the trial that she's accused of murdering Mr. Holly Brass and she has to go to the brig and it's she was so alone. It was dark in this like little cell. They couldn't even keep a light on because they said that if the candle fell out, the whole ship would catch on fire. And again, I was struck by how alone she was because for a while I was like, oh, this is fine. Even though her parents have no idea where she is and things are a little dicey with the captain, she has her people, she has the crew. And once again, we're kind of back to that feeling she had at the beginning where she's completely isolated. Yeah. Um, Well, she's kind of like, she's kind of thrown off her family name and disavowed that she's this woman of wealth and she's really slumming it with the crew by living in their quarters and and moving all of her stuff there. And then when this event happens where she is accused of of murder, she really is kind of in this gray zone now where where people don't believe her because she's not in her position of power anymore that people have come to to learn and you and you come to find out that the crew has other allegiances as well. And so it's a dark time for her for sure. But it's interesting because I think it's it was important for her to feel what it feels like to be lower than everyone else, to be of a lesser class than everyone on this ship and have to really figure out where is her place and who is she in this society. Yeah, it was sort of her the ultimate time of reflection for her. It's like sort of when, when you're in isolation, that's all you can do is think about who you are. And she's, of course, anticipating this trial, knowing that the captain is the judge, jury, executioner. Well, and she's got to, and she's got to come to find out that she's going to have to depend on, on people that generally have depended on her, and the tables have kind of turned a little bit. Yeah, because they, it's a trial by her peers, so yeah. all up to what the crew says, and a bunch of interesting little things happen during the trial. So the first is that the captain gives her the opportunity to sort of like forget that the whole thing happened. He's like, if you want to adopt your father's name again, then we can right. this this can all go away. And that, of course, was a pretty small detail that it doesn't really mean anything in the end because she doesn't accept those terms. But I thought it was so impactful as a reader that like she she could have made this whole thing disappear if she just pretended that she was not trying to be one of the crew sort of just like said again, oh, I'm a child of my father. I didn't, I didn't know what happened. I didn't know what I did. Yeah. But she won't do that. She ha- she wants to continue to take responsibility for her actions as part of this crew. There's actually one point where she starts to say, but my father, and she's cut off. And he says, you don't want, you're not using that. You've disavowed your family name and you are standing as a member of the crew. And it's, and it's a sad moment for her because she realizes that she doesn't have the power that she's relied upon for so long, which is her family name. And but it's also it's kind of inspiring because it's actually her coming into her own and becoming her own person and not someone who is as known as a woman who comes from this family. She's not her she's not a representative of her father. She's a representative of herself here. Yeah, that's I think that's really well said. You captured that perfectly. We talked already about this whole discussion that happens during the trial about Charlotte being unnatural, the captain kind of like talks her into a corner of like admitting that she is unnatural in the way that she dresses and the way that she acts. He sort of forces her to incriminate herself, which is just hard to read. Um, Another interesting dynamic is that the crew actually knows that Zachariah is alive because he's been hiding the whole time. His goal uh, after Charlotte thought that he died or or was lashed to death um, was to hide for long enough to get to Providence so that he could report the captain um, in hopes that 
he would be fired or in some way punished for his behavior. So there's sort of this, because Charlotte knows she didn't kill Mr. Hollybrass, she's like, okay, well, it must have been Zachariah then. So she assumes that maybe the crew thinks it could be Zachariah as well. And when she's on trial, it's kind of this moment of like, okay, so is the crew going to be loyal to her or to Zachariah? And I, I jotted in the margins of my book. It's like this situation where these people in 1832 are having to choose between two prejudices. It's like, are mm-hmm. you more racist? Or are you more sexist? Because Zachariah, again, being the only black person on the ship and Charlotte being the only woman on the ship or the only girl on the ship, these guys don't really know what happened. They weren't there. And as you said, she's dependent on their call and on their loyalty for her fate to see if she lives or dies. And ultimately they side with Zachariah, which could be because they have more history with him, of course. But I think when you boil it down, it's also the sense of like, which prejudice wins out for them. I think that, look, I think in the book, they, I, I think they mentioned the fact that they just have a history with him that, that goes back so far. And there's something really interesting about that because they talk about when a ship is on the ocean, there are no, there is no law, there is no king governing the ship. It is its own body of government. And it's interesting that even though they have this hierarchy of the captain and then the crew, they still see Zachariah, even though he's black, as one of their equals, which is something that's really nice to see in this society that they've built on the ship. Yeah, they already trust him more because they've been, they've had to, they've, they've counted on each other to survive. I do think what you get from this book is that when you're a part of a crew like this, like you really do need everybody to be doing their part and pulling their weight in order for everybody to survive. So I think that's, that is a good point. And yeah, ultimately they're like, nope, Charlotte, Charlotte's the one who killed him. Yeah, and so bye, girl. <laughs> bye, bye, you're going to be executed at dawn. Cause they're almost there. Like they're almost there. She's about to meet her family again and right. she's going to be hung. Thanks, which, is, I guess. which is crazy to me. Cause you're like, you work for my dad. You he right. essentially pays you and you're going to hang me and then like get to port and like, Good luck with that, I guess. I, I think they said they were going to like lie and say she like died in the hurricane, but it was like, it seems yeah. like a pretty severe punishment for the 13 year old girl of my 13 year old daughter of my boss. <laughs> yeah, he was like, I can adjust the records however I'd like. So they won't yeah. know that we're you. And long story short, the great news is that Captain Jaggery falls off the ship in the struggle that that happens after the trial. And they make they make Charlotte the captain. And one criticism that I found that was interesting is that, you know, it seems that this book is sort of an argument against like capitalism and existing power structures. And there's an irony there when like the only non-working class person who was on the ship is in the end, like made the captain, even though she's right. not really the captain, like it's a figurehead position because Zachariah is doing all of the work. But I did think that that was an interesting note that I hadn't thought about that. Like this whole book is kind of pushing against these traditional power structures, but it's Charlotte who, even though she's a girl, like she's the only one who's not in the working class and she gets to be the boss at the end of the day. Right. She's kind of like the elite that takes the power position and Zachariah gets to do all the work behind the scenes, which feels very 2021, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, it does, sadly. So I thought that was a good note. Um, And then when she gets home, she is like not comfortable back with her family. Her dad reads her diary and finds out, well, he doesn't trust her. He thinks that he made that she made everything up. It actually felt very Little Women to me. I don't know how familiar you are with Little Women, but this whole idea of like, this kind of writing that you've done in your diary, this fiction, like, this is so trashy. Like, how dare you write this trash? Like, thinking it's fiction, but still, like, mad at her for writing this kind of scandalous stuff. He's going to punish her for it. He, like, burns her diary, which, again, felt very little women to me. And he's, yeah, he, like, locks her in her room. Well, it's like she has to go back to the 
the power dynamics that she left behind in England that kind of got blown apart on the ship and to see servants being so subservient and not making eye contact or and not calling her by her first name and her father essentially believing the men on the ship in a way and not believing his own daughter and her story and she's still stuck in these rigid power dynamics that you know she has really fought against in the last 200 pages of the book yeah and he like tells her when she can go to bed and yeah. there's one where he's like no i think you're tired it's time for you to go to your room yeah so she runs away she runs back to the ship she finds out from a newspaper that the seahawk is going back out and when we see her reunion with Zachariah, she says, I'm home. What did you think about the fact that she returned to the ship? I sort of, there's a part of me that wanted her to like stay and like fight against her dad a little bit. I kind of wanted to see that dynamic play out a little bit more. It felt like it it was over before it started. I sort of wanted to see what would happen if she stayed with her family a little bit longer, but it was nice to see her go back and obviously love to see a female protagonist fight against the expectations that are laid out for her but I did have some mixed feelings I think if ultimately Charlotte was ahead of her time and and where she was and where she was living was a place where she couldn't be who she truly was and so to do that she had to go back to the ship to the home to the people who who saw her for who she is and she saw them for who they were and so essentially she kind of found a family at the end that allowed her to be her true self which I think uh, you know Avi kind of says in the beginning of the book he, he hasn't written sequels on it because he wants the reader to be able to to see Charlotte who has now spread her wings and will fly off and onto all these new adventures and, and stories that she creates for herself. Fly off on the Seahawk. All exactly. Over. <laughs> it's so romantic. <laughs> so romantic. So on the whole, I know it can be hard to remember your first reading experience of a book you read when you were a kid, but on the whole, how do you feel that this adult reread of the true confessions of Charlotte Doyle held up to your memories of the book? Did it let you down? Does it match what you remembered? I definitely think it holds up, especially since you know, I've had 20 plus years where I've been reading mysteries and thrillers and suspense books. So there's a lot to compare it to. And, and even when I'm reading those kind of books these days, you know, you all you judge them against everything else you've read. And so there was, there's a lot for it to stand up against. I think maybe I had lowered expectations just knowing that it was kind of like a, a YA middle grade book and that it might not be fast paced and exciting and mysterious and twisty and dark and and it still was and I, I think it definitely lived up to it and maybe even surpassed it for the sense that I think that I appreciated a lot more of the themes that are explored in the book I think when I read it in sixth grade it was a lot more about the action and adventure and and underdog story where you come to root for Charlotte and now you see it as not only those things which it, it is wildly entertaining but it's also this really interesting exploration of class and power and gender and race that I think is still super relevant and something to take away even as an adult. Well, I'm really grateful that I finally got a chance to read this book and to join the club. Thank you for choosing it so awesome. that we can discuss it. I know that you think of yourself and joke about yourself as a professional reader of sorts. So I'd love to know what else you have been reading other than the true confessions of Charlotte Doyle. Listeners, Jordan is sitting in front of like a massive wall of books. So I can only <laughs> Uh, what kind of recommendations you have for us? Well, it's funny. Um, it's funny or it's ironic. I've read two books in the past couple of weeks, both kind of feel on topic. One of them that I really loved was called Migrations by this author, Charlotte. I'm going to probably butcher her name, McConaughey. But it is about a woman who joins the crew of a ship as they go to track down. It's, it's kind of in this post-apocalyptic world where most of the species of animals have gone extinct. And so she kind of joins this ragtag crew on a ship to go and track down the last bird migration of this 
specific species of birds. And it's so good. It's super dark and twisty. And you learn about her background and her struggles. And it kind of was like a, a book about migratory bird patterns. It just sounds boring, but it's it's probably one of the best books I've read in the last year, actually. Wow. That sounds great and very um, appropriate for this discussion. Right, right. I kind of laughed when I thought about it. Um, and then I also read this really good book by this author, Jess Walter, called The Cold Millions, which is about unionizing in the 1900s and kind of overthrowing the system of government. So that also feels very relevant. And that one is excellent as well. I know the idea of unionizing in the 1900s sounds kind of dry, but it's a really good character story at the center. It's about these two brothers who are on wildly different paths. And and just the idea of fighting power structures and power hierarchies. And that one's also really good. Cool. Well, I will include links to both of those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, as well as a link to The True Confessions of Charlotte Doyle for those who want to check it out. And of course, I will be sure to include links to all things Jordy's Book Club listeners. If you are not following Jordan, please make sure that you are doing that. It's been such a pleasure having you on the show. Jordan, I really appreciate your time. Again, in the midst of everything that's going on in the world, um, means a lot that you were able to take some time to read this book again and to talk about it with me. Well, thank you for having me. It was it was fun to do a little bit flashback reading with some backlist stuff from my childhood. So I feel like I'm going to have to go back now and reread a bunch of these books that I used to love. Well, if you decide to do that, you'll have to let me know what you picked and what you thought about them. Of course. Thank, thank you. you. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.